Well, we've been looking at spiritual maturity in the book of Numbers. It's been a great study, and we're almost done. Before we get into that, um, though, just letting you a little, letting you in on a little preaching schedule news. Um, as you know, we're not able to do our steadfast conference this uh, this year. In fact, Darren was saying this is the one year anniversary of last year, and so we were kind of bummed a little bit. But it just wouldn't wasn't going to be possible. But what we are doing. Um, for all those who have been to Steadfast in the past, is we're sending them out a package of sermons. And in fact, uh, Jesse Johnson from Washington, D.C., who was going to be here uh, to preach for us, he's going to give us four messages that we're going to send out. We're going to do a couple of other things, an interview with Dr. Mark, uh, Mark Tatlock of uh, the Master's Academy International on the Great Commission. Uh, but I don't have a Steadfast message. So next Sunday night, that's the Steadfast Conference. That's it. So I'm going to preach my message next week, and I'm going to do it on getting the gospel right, making sure we get the gospel right. And so that'll be um, the message. Then we'll get to send out electronically to uh, the, the several hundred people in our mailing list. So we're excited about that. But for tonight, spiritual maturity in the book of Numbers, one of the great measures of spiritual maturity in the life of the Christian is your understanding of God's intention for the family. That is a big measure. How you view and understand family and how much scripture has influenced you versus how much our culture has influenced you, that's a major indicator of your walk with the Lord. And it's just a matter of knowledge. It's a matter then of taking that knowledge and deciding to apply it, no matter what, to your family. So tonight, we'd like to look at spiritual maturity through family. Now, if you've been through us through this with the whole uh, Pentateuch series, you remember that the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law of Moses, is really one unit. The first, first five books of our Bible really form one unit, one whole structure. And as such, it is very much self-interpretive. And so to understand our passage tonight in Numbers chapter 30, and you can be there and that's fine, it would be helpful for us first to do a little review. I'd like to review Leviticus 27. You don't have to turn there because I'm, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to walk through it. But Leviticus 27 is really how we understand the context of Numbers chapter 30. So you just might make a note of that. All of Leviticus 27 concerns the topic of things or people, things or people which have been dedicated to the Lord, given over to the Lord. And this is called more precisely a vow, something you decide to give. It's the setting apart or the sanctifying of things or people for service or as a gift to the Lord. But to be more specific, that chapter also deals with the unsanctifying, the unsetting apart of things already dedicated to the Lord, how and when that was possible. Verses 1 through 8 in Leviticus 27 speak of persons dedicated to the Lord. This might include a special vow such as Hannah made in 1 Samuel 1 to give her firstborn son to the service of the Lord. This might include the promise of a Nazarite vow, Numbers chapter 6, for a specific period of exclusive dedication to the Lord. And if you wanted to get out of that vow, if you wanted to back out of it, you had to pay a fine to redeem that person back. And the fees are set in detail in those verses. Then in Leviticus 27, verses 9 through 13, it speaks of animals that are dedicated to the Lord, extra offerings, extra sacrifices, but the person could only redeem an animal given for a sacrifice which turned out to be unclean, disqualified for some reason. Clean animals could not be redeemed. Once they were given, they were always given. 
The next couple of verses, 14 and 15, any houses dedicated to the Lord as a gift could be redeemed. You just had to pay a 20% fee. 16 through 25, any land dedicated to the Lord could be redeemed. And then 26 through 29 says you can't vow to God what already belongs to him. You can't give to him something that already is his. For example, you couldn't dedicate a firstborn animal to the Lord. The law already says it's his. So nothing devoted to the Lord already you couldn't say, this is yours. It's like saying you're, you're about to put your offering check in the offering bag and say, Lord, I've just now decided to dedicate this to you. No, you already decided to give it, so it's his. In the case of all these vows, they could be undone, but the catch was that generally you had to pay a 20% fee. So that's our context for Numbers chapter 30 now, to understand these vows We're dealing in this section of Numbers from 27 to about 30, which is giving some new information for Israel, which hasn't been covered before. Sort of tying up some loose ends, so to speak. And here we come to this seemingly odd chapter about fathers and daughters and husbands and wives and vows. Now, the subject is vows, but the vows really are just providing the vehicle for the deeper and more important issue of the order and the helpfulness of the family As created by God, the vows are just the context. They're just the setting. They're the backdrop. They're the vehicle for the family. So tonight, to help us with this text, I just want to very simply explain the text. First of all, I'm going to expound on the text, and then I'm going to exhort you from the text. First, I want to explain it. Then I will expound it. Some key principles, what we see here, because this isn't really about vows that much. And then I'll exhort you. And the way I want to do that is I want to highlight some really good family texts in the book of Proverbs. And so we'll switch over to there in a while. But for now, I just want to explain the text to you. And it's not long, so let's go ahead and read together Numbers chapter 30. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of Israel, of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand." But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. If she marries a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, Then he makes void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she is vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand." But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish or her husband may make void. 
But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. Verse 2, let's explain this. The Lord is very clear. A man who makes a vow to the Lord is bound by that vow. If he says, I'm going to sacrifice an extra bull this year, then he's bound by that. He must do it. If he said, I'm going to take the vow of the Nazarite, I'm going to devote myself fully to the worship of God for a time, he's bound by that vow. And then beginning in verse 3, we see the beginning of a, a progression. This progression starts with a young, unmarried woman making a vow. If her father doesn't stop her, then both she and her father will endure whatever the natural consequences of that vow might be. For example, if she says that she would personally like to sacrifice an extra goat for a sin offering because she has sensed great conviction of her own sin, if her father doesn't stop her, either in agreement, yeah, I've seen your sin, you need to sacrifice the goat, or in this case, maybe he didn't spiritually lead like he should, in either case, it's going to cost him a goat. It's going to happen. But if her father stops her, if he says no, then God will forgive her breaking her vow to him. The vow is null and void. Now, I want to point this out. This chapter, to my knowledge, has the only instances in all the Bible of forgiveness of God being granted automatically by means of a statute or a law. That It's just automatic. The progression continues. We go from a young unmarried woman who makes a vow now to a young married woman who made, verse 6, her vows or any thoughtless utterance before she got married that she's now under. And now we get a little bit of commentary here on the foolishness of making rash promises. Both verse 6 and verse 8 contain the only use in the whole Hebrew Bible of this term translated thoughtless utterance. A thoughtless utterance is making a promise without thinking of the consequences or the ramifications of that promise. It's a rash, emotion-based commitment. And God gives her the opportunity to get out of that by means of her husband. For example, out of a genuine desire to worship the Lord, a young woman might have promised God in prayer that she would give an extra sacrifice twice per year for the rest of her life. Well, the problem is her new husband's going to have to pay for that. He's going to have to say, you were 11 when you said that. I don't don't really want to pay for that. So again, if he hears of this vow, on that day and on that day only, he can stop it, and God will release her from her obligation. But if he doesn't stop her, then both of them will live with those consequences from then on. And we understand this. She previously made a vow that didn't involve others, but now she's one flesh with her husband. It would be unjust if he was forced to relinquish something against his will, this is still good wisdom today. A young couple getting married, old obligations are all reevaluated, right? If a young lady promised, I'm going to give $1,000 a month to joyful generosity in our church, and then she gets married, her husband's going to look at that and say, I don't think so. You know, we've got other obligations now. We have a house payment. So that makes sense. We reevaluate those obligations. Then the progression goes from the unmarried young woman to the married young woman. It's interrupted by a parenthesis here in verse 9 
But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. Now, that sounds punitive. Like if you're widowed or divorced, then you're out of luck. No, that's not the case. The fact is, is that her vows won't adversely affect a husband or a father. That she can make that decision on her own. So like the man of verse 2, she's expected to keep her vows. But then after this interruption, the progression is now complete. We go from unmarried young woman to married young woman who took a vow before she was married. Now to a married woman who takes a vow after she's married. And once again, if on the day he hears of it, her husband can make it null and void. But if he says nothing, then too bad, so sad, the vow stands. And I want you to notice verse 15. If a husband makes her vow null and void after that first day, after he heard of it, but then later on says, no, I don't want you to do that. Now God says, you are in sin to the husband. You shall bear your iniquity. You broke a vow before me. So he didn't do what was his responsibility as the head of the home. But then... In this case, we get more details. In fact, the only example in this chapter of an actual vow that's made, verse 13. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish or her husband may make void. To afflict herself. What is this? This is a vow of self-denial, a vow of self-affliction, likely including fasting. For a period of time. That's probably the main application of this. Now I want to be very clear. To afflict yourself was not somehow. To gain God's favor through self-denial. It wasn't to say. God's going to like me more. If I don't eat chocolate for a month. That's not what this was. The Bible never teaches self-affliction. To make God happy. What this is. Is a time of mourning. It's a time of sadness. It's a time of grief. In fact it helps us to understand this. Because it's exactly the same verb. This afflicting yourself used in the command for the day of atonement. In Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 29, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall, here it is, afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns with you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. What was the day of atonement about? It was a day of mourning. It was a day of grief. Over what? Over my sin. Over that death must occur to atone for my sin. And so on the day of atonement, you denied yourself the normal, usual things of life to go along with this grief, to go along with this sadness, to go along with this mourning. So what did that include? Well, there was certainly the denial of food, fasting. But interestingly, the Mishnah which is a collection of ancient Jewish commentaries on the law of Moses, Moses also clarifies that afflicting yourself on the day of atonement included abstinence from marital intimacy. That makes sense. It doesn't seem congruent with the day of mourning and sadness and fasting that then go on date night after the morning. That doesn't make any sense. But what's the problem with this? Well, for a married woman, if she says she's going to afflict herself, then she's also afflicting her husband. And he may or may not be okay with this. And in fact, this is very consistent with the New Testament. This is exactly the same marriage principle carried over into the new covenant in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul in verses 3 through 5 give very, gives very clear instructions that a husband does not own his body, a wife does not own her body, but rather they are to watch out for one another in their marital intimacy. So, this makes sense. It's just a way... 
for the heads of the homes to keep the women of their home from having to fulfill something that perhaps was a rash promise or something that doesn't make sense then after marriage. So that's the, exp- the explanation of the text. Before I get into the expounding part, applying this text to the family, and I don't want you to get too hung up on the vows part. This chapter is more about the spiritual authority of the family, which we'll get to. But I do want to remind you about vows because it is a confusing subject. We don't always call them vows, but the Christian life does have numerous promises to God. And so the principle of vows does apply. We don't make official vows so much anymore. But think about these promises. What is your baptism? Your baptism was a public commitment to live by faith, by God's grace, in obedience to the Lord. Your baptism was a public declaration that I am following Christ from now on. What's the logical step that goes with baptism? It's the membership covenant. You're familiar with ours. Ours is designed simply after what the believers in Romans 12 were commanded to do in the context of their local church body. A few of us have made promises to God concerning our call to the gospel ministry, no matter the cost, no matter the trial, no matter the hardship. That's a form of a vow. And in fact, the key component to this is ordination, that you're tested after having been trained. And a group of men who already have been tested and who are ordained themselves, they say from now on, you are a minister of the gospel of Christ. How about marriages? We seal those with what? With wedding vows. And this is maybe the most important one for us to think about. By calling ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, we are the ones that Jesus said, the ones who truly love me do what? Obey my commandments. If you say I'm following Christ, it means you're following Christ. You're doing what he says. We don't live under a system of vows as perhaps an Israelite under the Israelite covenant with God, but we do make promises in the Christian life, and we are to take them seriously. The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said it this way, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Do what you say you're going to do. But I do want to expound on the text now. There's some important principles concerning the family, which are clearly seen in Numbers 30. So we're going to make this primarily applicational tonight. And I want to do five principles that we can extract here. We can expound from Numbers 30. And we'll start big and kind of work down to more specifics. First principle, God, and this is a long one, but it it needs to be all in here. God has established the patriarchal family as the basic unit of society. God has established the patriarchal family as the basic unit of society. Not just the family, but the patriarchal family. The family that's headed by husbands and fathers. This is very, very important. The Black Lives Matter organization is infinitely more than just about police reform. In fact, just this past week, they removed from their website a significant part of their belief system, which includes what they call, quote, disrupting the nuclear family structure. That is their goal. Instead of the nuclear family, children should be raised by society and by villages, as they call them. Now, where does this belief system come from? Well, one of their co-founders, Patrice Cullors, says on video, we are trained Marxists. That's who they are. Meaning, according to Karl Marx's The Communist Manifesto, not only should the government abolish private property, the government should abolish the nuclear family structure. That's what they believe. Have those concepts ever been lived out? They have. Soon after Russia's October Revolution of 1917, entire new family laws were passed. 
in Russia, including marriage and divorce regulated by the government instead of by the church like it used to be. Divorce law was changed to make it possible to leave your spouse in a matter of minutes. And legal distinctions, you ready for this? Legal distinctions between wives and mistresses were eliminated. Property rights could be given by a man to any woman he wanted, not just his wife. And what was the result? Well, men changed wives frequently when the whim hit them. And the divorce rate went through the roof. Chairman Mao Zedong of China explained many, many years ago why his view was that families needed to be managed by the state. He said, quote, reproduction needs to be planned. In my view, humankind is completely incapable of managing itself. It has plans for production in factories for producing cloth, tables and chairs and steel, but there is no plan for producing humans. This is anarchism, no governing, no organization, no rules. Mao Zedong says there is no plan for producing humans. Yes, there is. Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's the first part of the plan. Next part of the plan, Genesis 2:24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Genesis 1:28, the third part of the, fl- the plan, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What is God's plan? Marriage between a man and a woman and as many babies as you can get out there. That's God's plan. God has established the patriarchal family as the basic unit of society. Anybody who says you may define family however you want is in error. There's a second principle we could get from Numbers 30. Getting a little more specific. A key role of the husband and father is spiritual protection. A key role of the husband and father is spiritual protection. You note that everyone pays when this is neglected. When the husband and the father heard of a vow and didn't do anything about it, then consequences happen. Now, what is this for? Well, this helps protect, protect the women under spiritual authority from the consequences of a rash or a spontaneous promise. Her father or her husband can say no. And if a promise is made from emotion or sentiment or any other reason than a thoughtful reason decision, then there's a protection in place. There's a great comparison here. Just a few chapters earlier in Numbers 25, who was it who led Israel into idolatry with the Baal-worshipping Moabites? You remember? It was the chieftains, the heads of the families. And they failed their families. They failed the whole nation. And so Numbers 30 is a welcome contrast. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air. These are men who are leading their families spiritually. And of course, our warning to men is that if as spiritual leaders you get your eyes on anything except shepherding and encouraging your family toward loyalty and obedience to the Lord, you have essentially fallen into idolatry yourself. What's the point of having a family if you're not going to lead them toward the Lord? There's no point otherwise. One of the most common questions I get from men is, how do I spiritually lead? What does that mean? What does that look like? I don't have time to go into a long explanation, but I think there's one easy way. We lead primarily by example. We lead by example. 
If you're pugnacious and argumentative, your family's going to think that sin is normal. If, on the other side, you're passive, you don't take a stand for anything, including the righteous behavior of your wife and children, then your family will learn that women are really in charge and men are supposed to just sit back and follow. That's what they'll think is normal. If you're mildly interested in the scriptures, then your family will think that is normal. If, on the other hand, you create a family culture where the Bible is expounded and is taught and the family is in church learning and worshiping and growing, then that's what's normal. If you build your calendar around everything else first, then try to squeeze in a little time gathering with the body of Christ When you can, then your family's going to think that's normal. And you'll have children for the rest of their life wondering, is church that important or not? And so how do you lead spiritually? Primarily, just follow Christ and have your family tag along right behind you. Very simple. How might young men who are not married think about this? Well, you think about this by starting to establish your life now and follow Christ in all of your ways. Don't let a young woman tell you how you ought to live your life. You live your life for Christ. And if a young woman wants to come alongside and follow you in that life, then great. That's fine. But you only marry someone who will follow you in that. And for you young men, now is the time to examine the worldliness of your ways. All this talk of sow your wild oats now while you can, that's nonsense. No, sow the seeds of righteousness and holiness and behavior that is befitting a mature man. Act married now so that you may be married later. Because however worldly you may be will be what happens in like fashion to your wife and will happen in worse fashion to your children. Men, you need to be learning, learning, learning. The saturation of God's word is indefinable in many ways. Talked to a pastor a number of years ago, and he talked about training elders. And he said, yeah, I I trained up a couple of guys to be elders. That's great. What did you do? He said, we read a book together. Okay, how many chapters in the book? He said, 11. So in 11 chapters, a book that's probably about a quarter of an inch thick, you have trained men to know the word of God, to be completely capable of leading the bride of Christ on earth? Are you kidding me? You got to be kidding. No, there is a saturation in the word of God. There is a reading and a study and a weeping over the word and knowing the word. You should be able to answer men questions on righteousness, on holiness, on marriage, on child rearing, on money, on relationships, on the church, on Christ, on God the Father, on God the Son, on God the, the Spirit. You should be able to answer these questions from, from Scripture and at least know where to go. That's your job. And sadly, in most cases, sometimes our ladies are the ones who study more. Get in the Word. Get in the Word and listen and grow. We have one guy in our church who listens to somewhere in the vicinity of two to three hundred sermons a year. There you go. That's what you do. Because if you don't know the spiritual dangers and if you don't know the direction your family ought to go, how can you protect them? How can you be that abiding influence? The key role of the husband and father is spiritual protection. There's a third principle. This is fascinating. God safeguards the integrity of the family. God safeguards the integrity of the family. Now, I want you to know this here in Numbers 30, something very, very rare. You remember in Leviticus 27, I said that 
God says, if you've already vowed something to me or if it already belongs to me, it's mine. You can't rededicate it and you can't buy it back. But here, he does something different. God here says that he will give up something that already belongs to him. The proceeds of a vow. Why is he doing this? It is to protect the integrity of the family. And listen to this. This is God showing his level of emphasis on the importance of the spiritual authority of the man in the house such that he won't get in the way of it, even to his own detriment. God makes no judgment here as to whether the vow of the young woman is a good thing or a a silly thing. He simply says, I won't get in the way. Husband, father, you make the call. God has established this authority. He won't undercut it, even for the sake of what might have been a very genuine and a heartfelt vow by one of his precious young ladies. Here is something you will not hear very often. These two words in one sentence together, God defers. God defers to the spiritual head of the home. He's deferring to the husband. Great example for us, by the way, that if you're in charge of something, you don't always have to have your way. This is why we often say that in relationship to authority, we submit to anything that does not force us to sin. That the happiest of believers in Christ are always the most submissive, the most humble, because this is where you get true and abiding peace in that humility. But in this case, God defers. That's a phenomenal concept. And he does so to safeguard the integrity of the family. There's not an instance here where a wife can say, well, I've already vowed it to God, so I don't care what you think, husband. No, God says, no, you do what your husband says. So fourth principle. Sometimes spiritual leadership must be decisive and quick. Sometimes spiritual leadership must be decisive and quick. You notice how much time a father or husband has to make his decision concerning these vows on the day he hears of it. That's it. And you also notice something God doesn't say You should respect the authority of the father and the husband unless you don't agree with his decision. Nope. The decision stands and the daughter or the wife is expected to follow. As a matter of fact, we saw that in verse 15, lack of decisiveness, lack of leadership puts the man in the position of having sinned. Why? Because he thought about it too long. He thought about it too long. What does this mean, men? It means you need to know what you are about. You need to know who you are spiritually and be so soaked in the word of God that you know what to do. There's no question. It's great and it's fabulous when we have time to consider our decisions as men which impact our family. To take lots of time to pray and to ponder what scripture says. But when you walk in on your teenage son viewing porn on a device, you rip that device out of his hands and you say you're done. When your wife has a sharp tongue with those around her, you correct her, even if there's going to be emotional fallout for you personally. When you sense a laziness about wanting to worship with God's people in your family, you change your family schedule so that no one has an excuse. You don't have a family discussion. You sit down and you say, here's our new schedule. When you've sinned against your family, you take the lead and repent to them and show them the humility you desire in them. It is not always the time to say, let's pray about this for many weeks or months. Sometimes you need to decide now and do the right thing. One more principle. Your decisions have impact on others in your family. Your decisions have impact on others in your family. Decisions should be made together or in concert with the spiritual authority over you or in your family. 
Your family harmony should be guarded very, very carefully. Decisions you make are no longer just about you. It involves the entire family unit. You know, the whole idea that older kids in the home just kind of jettison their family duties so that they can be so filled with activities that they're barely around, that's completely contradictory to the family unit idea in Scripture. Or the whole idea that families turn into a bunch of individuals all pursuing their own lives coincidentally while living under the same roof just really as roommates. That's contrary to the family unit concept in Scripture. Put that in the positive. The, the family is to support one another, to pull for one another, to uplift each other, to maintain the solidarity and the togetherness of the marriage and of the family. This is very simple. The husband and wife are to have regular and prioritized times together, and the whole family is to have regular and prioritized times together. That's hard in our culture, isn't it? It's hard to say, no, I'm not going to give up one more evening a week. That's for my family. Any decision by any family member which harms this solidarity is likely a wrong decision. Tremendous thoughts for our families here, which are to be honoring to God the priority of a patriarchal family. So important, so clear in this text. Well, we've explained, we've expounded. Now I want to exhort, and I want to take some time to do this. I wanted to go on sort of a whirlwind tour of the book of Proverbs. So turn with me to Proverbs 10. And there's no way to do this in a comprehensive fashion whatsoever. I just want to whet your appetite to include Proverbs in your home life. I'm just going to do a few summary statements here to kind of just look at how incredibly rich the book of Proverbs is for your family. Just going to give you some summary statements about family life that really key off of what we saw in Numbers chapter 30. Here's the first summary statement. Wisdom matters in the family. Wisdom matters in the family. Proverbs 10, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. A child who walks in ways which are wise and following after the Lord brings joy to his father. And conversely, one who rejects how he was raised brings sorrow. It's a word that means tormented worry to his mother. All of you mothers, you know what that is. You know what tormented worry is. In other words, children have an obligation to do what's right because it hurts others when they don't. This is a great question to ask in any decision, any direction for a family. How will this affect others? How does it affect the whole family? And how do children demonstrate this wisdom? Verse 8 the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. This is talking about whether you use your ears or your mouth more. It's very simple. The wise listen to receive instruction, and the fool, the babbling fool, in Hebrew, the lippy fool, the one whose lips are constantly doing this, will come to ruin. This is the child or anyone who doesn't seriously consider the words of instruction being spoken before immediately dismissing them. When somebody, you're having a discussion with somebody in your family and they don't even let you finish a sentence, what does that mean? Didn't hear the first part. It's already thinking ahead. In fact, there's another quality of the babbling fool. He is often dishonest. Look at verse 10. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble and a babbling fool will come to ruin. The one who winks the eye. This is someone who is deceptive. You can't trust their words. Uh, Proverbs 16.30 says, Whoever winks his eyes plans a dishonest thing. 
And someone here who is habitually dishonest is associated with the babbling fool. The unbeliever who is not convicted to pursue honesty and righteousness. And so wisdom matters in the family. This is a fabulous question to ask in in a meeting between married couples or in your family. What would wisdom have us do? What is the wise option here? What would be most honoring to God? Here's another summary statement. Women make or break the family. Women make or break the family. Look with me at chapter 11. We'll just keep going through some chapters here. Chapter 11, verse 22. One of the funniest verses in all the Bible. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. You're going to go to sleep tonight thinking of this picture. I have decreed it. You're going to think of a pig with a gold ring. Why is this ridiculous? Well, what this says is that this is a woman who's all external. There's nothing real inside. Everything is about appearances, but there's no character development, no concern for godliness of heart. And so Solomon says that this type of woman is essentially worthless, and she's really worthless to her family. That you might as well do a makeover on a pig because it's, it's pointless because the externals don't change the internal depravity and the selfishness. Now, that's the negative, but on the positive side, look with me at chapter, four, chapter 12, rather, verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Excellent, is a, it's a rich word which speaks of strength. It speaks of, of nobility. It speaks of competence, of being skillful, of being dignified. This word is used twice of the wife in Proverbs 31, verse 10. An excellent wife who can find, verse 29. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. But what does it mean that she's the crown of her husband? It means she adorns him. She's the finishing touch on a godly man. She's what makes him appear noble. Look, you can take a regular guy and put a crown on him and he appears kingly, doesn't he? And she is the crown. An excellent wife is one who works to elevate and adorn her husband's life to make him successful, to help him in every way possible. Now, here's the question, though. If the man is the spiritual leader of the family, the head of the home, why would we say that women make or break the family? Well, the second half of verse 12 says, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. She brings shame like rottenness, literally decay or mold in his bones. She takes the life out of him, takes the will to achieve out of him. And now he's just having to deal with high-maintenance, emotion-driven drama and ungodly behavior. And you can see it in the eyes of men. If you're a man, you know it. You see the guy. You see, see that guy right there? His wife sucked the soul out of the marrow of his bones 10 years ago. You can see it. You notice this contrast. The wife can either drain the very marrow from the strength of her husband or she crowns him. She adorns him and makes him better. She's the better half which helps his weaknesses and fills his heart with love, which a man is, for a man, is motivation to achieve. Listen, all through history, men have been achieving primarily, why? For their women. That's why they want their wives to be proud of them. Men have gone to war to make their girl happy and to make her proud. Men have built businesses. Men have built nations. Men have conquered nations for the love of a woman. That woman can make or make make or break things. Now, you might say, oh, Steve, you're making that up. 
women can't make or break the home. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 1. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. What is this saying? What does a wise woman do? She makes the home. What does a foolish woman do? She breaks the home. She breaks it down. How blessed a home is with a godly woman who just holds everything together, who holds the warmth and the color and the tenderness of a home. I mean, in, in our house, if I didn't have Sylvia, we'd, I don't know what we'd have. We'd have two by fours hanging from the wall. It, it would be horrible. All the light bulbs would be out. Our electric bill would be so far through the roof because I never turn lights off. She does. She takes care of us in so many ways. She makes the home warm. If we had guests in our home, she serves wonderful food. I would be ordering pizza. I would be doing terrible things. I I might not even have food. I might say, just bring something if you want to come. Woman makes the home. Here's another principle we could look at. And again, these are just samples from Proverbs. I just want to whet your appetite. Here's another summary statement. The words of a home are vital. The words of a home are vital. They, They matter. Chapter 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This proverb is self-explanatory. Do your words harm or do they build up? I don't want to preach this because I have words that harm. We all do. Now, I'm not talking about necessary correction, which involves wounding someone that you love for their own benefit. But you also notice that this verse doesn't give a neutral option. There is no, I'm not going to harm you with my words, but neither am I going to help you with my words. I'm just going to be somewhere in between. That's not an option. Paul said it this way, Colossians 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What a picture this is. I want you to picture that your words are something that you could look at. And before you put them in your mouth to have them come out, you say, okay, I'm about to, hang on a minute. Let's put a little salt on this, a little pepper. Let's just stick it on the grill for a second. Let's give it some nice grill marks. Make it look good. Let's make it taste good. Let's make it present well. Now I will say these words. What does that involve? It involves a little bit of thought. Have you ever regretted words you thought about? Not usually. What are the ones you regret? The ones that came out before your brain activated, right? Look at verse 13, verse 1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. What's a scoffer? This is a big word. A scoffer in Hebrew is a barbarous person who mocks. This is wicked. It's it's to speak barbarously, to be mocking. And in fact, it's a word that means to act as an interpreter. What does that mean? It means to refuse to hear what's actually being said And only believe the worst and the most terrible version of something that's being said. To act as an interpreter. You're a scoffer. This is the arguer. This is the one who uses technique and mocking to intimidate another. Look at verse 3 of chapter 13. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. Whoever opens wide his lips comes to ruin. There's a contrast here. A guarded mouth versus a wide open mouth. Open, wa- opens wide his lips. It conveys any sort of rashness with the tongue, which certainly includes lack of control, things like using mocking, things like raising your voice. Raising the voice is, can be a 
form of intimidation, a form of belittling, a form of tearing down, a form of intimidating someone with a wide open mouth. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. Chapter 14, verse 3, By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. This is a warning. The the member of the family who is continually destructive with the tongue, eventually you can't have a productive conversation. There's just going to be natural consequences that happen. When disrespect and derision begins, then the conversation is over. That's a natural consequence. The other side of that, the lips of the wise keep the conversation going because there's love, there's community, there's safety in those speaking. And then probably the most classic verse on the tongue in chapter in Proverbs is chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. What a tremendous truth. What is a soft answer? You don't have to be an exegete of the scriptures to understand this. It's the opposite of a loud one. A soft answer is tender. It's reserved. It's quiet. But what is a harsh word? It's something that means hurtful, abusive, deriding, cutting. And how do you answer that? Softly. Chapter 15 is just rich with some wonderful verses. Verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. We have the tongue there. We have, oh, I missed verse 2 also. Verse 2, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge. The mouths of fools pour out folly. What does it mean that the tongue of the wise commends knowledge? It's a, it's a culinary word. Commends knowledge, it means it goes well with it. It pairs well. Like we don't eat broccoli and ice cream at the same time. They don't pair well. That it goes together. That words don't just spew out opinions, but they're thoughtful and knowledgeable in wisdom. And then verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. What a choice. Your tongue can create living joy or it can break the spirit of others. It can break the spirit. Whoever said sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Nobody actually believes that. It's not true. Other tremendous verses. Verse 7. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. What does this mean? Wisdom says let's gather knowledge. Don't answer before you have all the, all the facts. Foolishness says I know all I need to and I don't want to hear anything else. When you say I don't want to hear it, what does that say? That says you are being the heart of a fool. Verse 18 of chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. How do you know someone is hot-tempered? By their words. By their words. That's not okay in your family. What's the opposite? The opposite is slow to anger. When you get immediately angry, how much confidence should you have in what you're saying? None. You should have no confidence in it. It's very similar to verse 28 of chapter 15. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. It's okay to say, I'd like to have some time to think about what you've said to me. Every single one of you, and myself included, have countless times where you say, if I had thought like 10 more seconds, I wouldn't be spending days making up for what I said if I had just thought 10 more seconds. We all have those failures. 
And if you'll do that, if you'll think you'll be the person in your family, verse 31 of chapter 15, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. You'll be that person. Took a little time on this, but in my very brief search of Proverbs, just on my own, I found 147 verses dealing with the tongue and listening because those two go together, of hearing one another. It should be said that your home should be where you can really be yourself. That's what people say. That's where you can really be yourself. Could I say this? May your home be where you're the same as you are other places. And in fact, may your home be where not only are you just the same, you're the elevated version of what God would have you to be. Let the home be where your words are the sweetest, where they're the most tender, where they're the most caring, the most helpful, the most appreciative. I'll never forget the example of Dr. Richard Mayhew that I worked for at the Master Seminary for a number of years. And we would be in a faculty and staff meeting and he was an ex-navy officer he didn't do things with feeling and emotion in fact if you said how do you feel about this he would say why does how i feel about it mean anything it's what do i think about it and he was very direct very businesslike just going through things and then the cell phone would ring and it'd be his wife and and while it's ringing he'd say now look we need to do this 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 we're going to be here we're going to be over here and he'd go hi sweetie and we're all brother he's just a big softy why Because his words were better in his home than they were anywhere else. That's the way it ought to be. How is it usually? Usually it's the other way around. Usually, sadly, in our home, because we believe these people will never leave us, is when we let our guard down. Should be the opposite. Let me give you one more summary statement. Peace in the home is priceless. Peace in the home is priceless. Chapter 17. I was going to try and go through 31. We're not going to make it. Peace in the home is priceless. Chapter 17. Verse 1, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Very similar to chapter 15, verse 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. What a tremendous hope, what a tremendous lesson that money can't buy peace in your home. And that's good because if you don't have any money, then you can still have peace. And that's a That's a blessing. Strife here literally means a brawl, a quarrel, where no one is listening. Just everyone's trying to win, usually through some sort of intimidation tactic of of yelling or, or calling names, all of these ways that we try to win. You notice that the setting of the choice between quiet and peace and strife and war, what is the setting? It is the meal time. It's the meal time. The meal of the family helps identify the flavor or the personality of the family. Sometimes when I do counseling with entire families, one of the first questions I like to ask is, tell me about mealtime. Tell me what that's like. Because what you do over a meal is a mirror into your family because it's how you speak, it's how you talk, it's how you relate. In our family, mealtime isn't just feeding time. It's when we share about our day. We discuss the events of the day. Sometimes we even talk about the news. We discuss theological issues. On, on Sundays, I quiz them. What did Daddy preach today? Well, nobody in my family calls me Daddy anymore, but I wish they did. We give instruction. We laugh. We have fun. We enjoy ourselves. But this is where everything else stops. And it's our favorite time. It should be your favorite time where, where you say, this is our moment. We sit here at table together in fellowship 
This is so scriptural. You can clearly see that fellowship and peace and mealtime go together. King David even pictures his fellowship with God as a meal. In Psalm 23, you prepare what? A table before me in the presence of my enemies. That when enemies are all around, he still sits at table with God. The sacrifices of Israel are essentially a meal with God. This is why the sacrificial system prescribed with the animal sacrifices, grain and wine. Why? Meat, bread, and drink. A meal. Our homes are to be a microcosm of the peaceful fellowship meal with God. So those are just a few summary statements. The family is God's design. It's the central structure of humanity. But before we finish, I want to return our hearts and minds back to one little detail we saw in Numbers 30. And you don't have to turn there. Something very touching. Something to remind us of the love of God. You recall that God, and this is odd again to use these two words in the same sentence, that God deferred. God deferred. He didn't take what was owed rightfully to him, the proceeds or the benefit of any vow. Instead, he gave that up. In this case, God was the one sacrificing what was rightfully first his. God was willing to waive his own rights. Anything vowed to him belongs to him. And he gives us a tremendous example of not always needing to insist on our own rights. But there's something even bigger than that. Because God the Son would waive his own rights to that which is rightfully his, the heavenly glory he has with his Father, he would waive his own rights to fully exercise and demonstrate all the magnificence of God. In fact, he would waive his right to be only a spirit being. You remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had a right to live because he is life. Jesus had the right to condemn sin because he's perfectly holy and righteous. Jesus had the right to avoid the muck and mire of what it means to be human. And yet the one who had the right to live died in our place. The one who had the right to condemn sin became sin for us. And the one who had the right to avoid humanity became a man. And will forevermore Be a man so that for all time he might be the perfect bridge for us, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who bridges mankind with God. He waived that right. He is incarnate in the flesh for all eternity. And how did he accomplish your salvation? He accomplished your salvation because he waived his rights and gave up what was justly his so that you could have what should never have been yours in the first place. What an example. What an example. And how does Christ want us to work our families in that same vein? To sacrifice, be loving for one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text. And at first glance, it seems a little odd to us, and especially as New Covenant believers, we're not sure what to do with the vows and the daughters being 
uh, overruled by their fathers and wives being overruled by their husbands. We're not certain what to do with that, but we see the clear principles that you have established the patriarchal family as this one unit of society. It is the place where we nurture children, where we nurture the picture of Christ in the church, our marriages. And so, Lord, I pray for our church that we would be those who pursue wisdom. May the book of Proverbs be opened in our families. May our families seek after that which is wise. May the men of our church lead by example, by being godly men. May we all continue to learn to guard our tongues, most especially with our own, with our own families. And might we be those that would lead in a way that is spiritually protective, that would follow in a way that is spiritually pleasing, and do all that would give honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.